0: Well, good morning, and we're in December. That's kind of cool. Anybody done with their Christmas shopping already? Uh, Anybody done with all their Christmas cards? (laughs) Okay, some people. Yeah. All right, well, the rest of us have work to do, and by the rest of us, I mean Michelle. (laughs) I don't do gifts or every once in a while I help with cards, but uh, I love the idea of those Christmas boxes in the back. It's just so fun. Every Sunday when you get to church, you just go look and see if anybody gave you a Christmas card. And it's really nice. You know, we have these huge stacks of Christmas cards and, you know, your hands can just get a cramp writing stuff. And to be able to just go to church and drop off everything for our church family. So we do want that to be convenient for all of you But we're also hoping that it'll just help all of us just think about each other as family and that it will make uh, giving Christmas cards easier for the church, for just church families. Anyway, I I just, I love that. Looking forward to it. A few people have heard about that and said, you know, I was going to do it next year. And somebody's like, no, do it this year. It's like, okay. (laughs) Hey, I want to just take a minute. I have two announcements this morning. I don't normally do announcements, but I have two announcements. One's actually not an announcement. I just, you know, uh, yesterday we had the Christmas, the women's Christmas brunch. Woo-hoo! It was such an amazing event. Yeah. And uh, we had over 100 ladies in here. And we just, like, totally transformed this place and then put it all back. And it was just so well planned. And, and I just actually, I want to say thank you to Judy. Judy, you Woo-hoo! did a spectacular, you know... This is just one of the things that Judy does, and, and I just think about, you know, uh, 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 Judy doesn't do anything for recognition. She does it just for the joy and pleasure of serving the Lord and, and loving and caring about people, but it's good for us to say thank you to people, even though that's no part of the motivation, and, um, but one of the things I love about the stuff that Judy does is that um, uh, she pulls together just a team of really gifted, talented people who are good at things but she actually understands like the vision and purpose behind what we do. So it's not just throwing a great fun party that doesn't have spiritual spiritual significance. And uh, this event was just wonderful. Uh, there was a bunch of uh, men that that got pulled into it, and so there were some guys that, that were serving, and it was um, it was just a great time for people to connect personally and individually. Uh, there was. Um, These great uh, life groups in our church donated these Christmas baskets, so life groups and some individuals that got raffled off, and um, the church made over $2,000 to give to our missionaries for Christmas, and just what a fun thing to have in mind, you know, to do something like that with a vision toward blessing people who have given their lives to taking the gospel all over the place, so I just love that. And um, there was great worship, and Candy did a great thing reading, and there was just an amazing gospel presentation. We had a ton of unbelievers here, and I just think what an incredible blessing to come to have great food, great fellowship, a really enjoyable time. But the the most significant thing is to be able to hear the gospel, and the fact that that happened. So anyway, I just want to say, Judy, thank you for all that you do, and also thank you to everybody. Like Judy is not the only one that did this; she pulled together a huge team of people that just really did such a great job. So that was wonderful. (laughs) give him one more hand. Okay, so this is another uh, really exciting kind of an announcement that I have to make. So we've been been talking as an eldership. We've been planning for a long time. A bunch of people have said, hey, Raj, when are we going to hire an associate pastor? And we've just been delaying, and we've been doing that on purpose. But we just thought, you know what? Let's get a job description ready. Let's get everything planned out, ready to go you know, through the end of this year, and then we'll really dig in and start a search in January, and we kind of talked about, you know, how how long, you know, how long do we want this uh, search to take? And one of the things that you learn in looking for uh, pastors is that, you know, often you think it'll be quick, and sometimes it's really long. And so our discussion was, um, we're less concerned with the timing on when we get somebody and more concerned about making sure that we hire the person that God wants for this church. So if that takes six months, if it takes a year, whatever. So we start putting this stuff together, and um, God just changes these circumstances, and all these things just happen. And I just want you to know that we are super close (laughs) to finding an associate pastor. And I know that this is... uh, news to everybody. We've already done one interview. I know this is news to all of you, and that actually wasn't our intention. We, our intention was to put it all together, get ready for a search, ask you guys to be praying for us. And I do want to still say, <laughs> pray for us, because it's not, it's not done, but we're, we're like right along the way. So uh, this is just a super exciting thing, and God just, it's amazing how God has just made things work. And we're, anyway, we're super thankful for that, and we'll be giving you guys more information soon, and uh, our expectation, which obviously, you know, this will depend on God's timing, but our expectation is, you know, potentially January. We we might have, we might might be done with that part of the search. So anyway, so all of our leaders are super excited and super thankful, um, especially for how much work God has saved us by (laughs) making all these things come together, because those are super challenging. So that is just uh, great news, and we wanted to just share that with you. And so anyway, good, good stuff. So be praying for us. Hey, uh, this is, this morning, is going to be our last sermon in Genesis this year. <laughs> and then we'll start up again next year. So we're gonna, we're going to end with how everything went wrong, but we're going to stop and we're going to take a break for some Christmas things. Um, but we're going to take a break for some Christmas things right before Adam and Eve's kids kill each other. I so I was just thinking about a good Christmas message let's talk about how Adam and Eve sinned and then and then Cain kills Abel. you know It's like uh, welcome on Christmas Eve Cain's killing Abel so so're uh, we're, so we're going we're gonna to continue on with that in January, but actually, Genesis chapter three, the, the passage that we're going to be addressing this morning, is actually the perfect passage. For Christmas, because it is the first promise of the coming of Jesus, happens right when Adam and Eve sin. God promises to send a Messiah. And what is Christmas a celebration of? You know what Advent is? You know what Advent means? Advent means coming, arrival. And so that's what we celebrate at Christmas is the arrival of Jesus who was promised. And so that's just so amazing. And that promise happens in this chapter. So this is a perfect um, first Christmas message, even though it's our last Genesis message, but it just works perfect for the season. And so we're going to be looking at that. And uh, you know, have you? Uh, and th- so this is the story, actually, of why Jesus needs to come. So let me just ask you a question: Have you ever looked around and wondered what is wrong with the world? You ever watch the news and feel discouraged and stressed out? And you know, I know, like this this recent thing that has happened in in Israel with people just being taken hostages, and we just we think about these terrible things. And in my life group. Um, not the life group I own, but the life group that I go to. Um, In the life group that I go to, uh, we actually took pictures of uh, people who were taken hostage, and we've been praying specifically for people. We pick somebody, and every day we pray for them. And one of the really cool things is just recently, when they released that group of hostages, I'm not 100% sure if it's everybody, but just about every single person that our life group was praying for has been released. And so uh, we I know that my life group, somebody in that group, uh, God answers their prayer, and so we're going to check the hostages, and if there's any that aren't released yet, we'll know that's not the one. <laughs> but, um, but you know, we think about just that, the horrible nature of things that we see in the world, and often that stresses us out. And every once in a while, these things come to the surface. But the truth is that throughout history, there have always been really terrible things like this happening. This, this is not new. There's a lot of people who would say, oh, look at this stuff. This is the end times. Jesus is coming back soon. And I just think this kind of stuff has been going on from the very beginning. And should we be aware of the return of Christ? Absolutely. Is this anything unique? No. This has always been happening. And we look around the world and we just think, man, this is so terrible. How can things like this happen? Think about little babies being kidnapped and old people being <clears throat> murdered and just the, the terrible things that happen. And it's not just, it's not just in other countries, right? Um, don't we look around the United States? I was thinking about Black, Black Friday, you know, just this celebration and everybody going shopping the day after Thanksgiving And, you know, there were 11 people that were arrested for shoplifting that had been, like, planning these big shoplifting sprees. And when I looked at the list of people, um, it was people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. It was like grandparents going out and robbing stores on Black Friday. Um, uh, You you guys, did you hear about Nike? Um, Nike, over this season, just a couple days after Black Friday on Sunday... Um, there was like 17 people that ran into Nike and stole over $12,000 worth of stuff. They just all ran into the store and just robbed it. Have you seen that stuff on the news? Have you seen any of the, the videos of what's happening in Sacramento where people just go down the street and bash in windows and steal people's stuff? And I, I saw one where there was these, these visitors from out of town standing there. People walked up, bashed out their windows right in front of them, stole their stuff um, and, and, just, and nothing happens. I saw this, this one video of uh, you know, somebody stealing a catalytic converter. You guys have heard about that, right? So, so there's these two guys in a driveway stealing a catalytic converter. And the owner of the house hears it, goes outside to confront them and say, get away from my car. And one of the guys is standing there with a pipe and he just looks at him and he says, shut up and go back in the house while they sit there and steal his catalytic converter. Um, I saw a video of, of somebody in a stop sign in San Francisco, and they just pulled up to a stop sign, and while they're at a stop sign, a car pulls up next to them, they get out of the car, they bash the window, take their luggage out, get in the car, and drive away. I mean, have you guys been seeing some of that kind of stuff happening in our country? It's like appalling. And you look at that, and you just think, you know, how does that happen? Where does that come from? Have you? uh, So we see that in the world, we see that here in the United States. And by the way, when we get to Genesis chapter six, if that traumatizes you and makes you feel distressed, um, it was a lot worse in Genesis six. This is not new bad things. Like the people living on the earth during the time of of uh, the flood would happily trade places with us. They would say, "Please put me in San Francisco. This seems like a walk in the park to me." And so, um, this is not, this, these things are not new, but the world is broken. Have you thought about, um, sometimes we see it in families, right? And, and we, we are aware of this during the holidays. Um, God has given um, moms and dads to love each other, to be married, to encourage each other, to bless each other. You know, the, the marriage relationship is the greatest gift that God has given mankind on this earth, other than salvation in Christ. Marriage is the best human thing. And yet, what's the divorce rate? And how many people are married and miserable? And you just think to yourself, how does that happen? Um, how, yeah, you know anybody who's where their parents that struggle with their kids? How does that happen? How do you have bad relationships with kids? You ever, just wonder how that happens. I mean, you have a mom and a dad who, they get together, they, they, they pray, they're so excited, they have a baby, and then they get this baby and they sacrifice to raise this kid, to love this kid, to teach this kid, to help them be educated, um, to, to do good things, to try to bless them. And, and in the end, you end up with kids sometimes that hate their parents, and parents sometimes that hate their kids. And um, there's just all this massive pain and sorrow. There's parents that, you know, their purpose is to love and raise kids. And sometimes parents are abusive and unkind and hurtful and damaging. And and this is the world that we live in. You ever look at things in your own life, and do you ever have thoughts that you just think, man, my, my thoughts are terrible? The way that I think about other people or vengeance or anger or hatred or even other kinds of sinful things, like people face addictions that they just can't get away with. And and, and people can l- just look in the mirror and just think, man, there's something really wrong with me. Have you ever noticed those things or seen those things? And uh, what's terrible is sometimes people have things really wrong with them, but they're blind to it and they don't even understand it. And Genesis chapter 3 actually explains how God created this good, perfect world, how God gave these amazing gifts to people. And Genesis chapter 3 explains all the things that are wrong that we see. And and what is so sad is that in our world, people that don't read and believe and understand Genesis chapter 3, whenever they try to solve problems... If, if you think about your life and the problems in your life and the problems in your family, the problems in your marriage, if you look at all those things and you don't think and you don't understand what the Bible teaches in Genesis chapter 3, you will never be able to solve those problems. Um, Genesis 3 tells us how those problems got here, and they also tell us what we need to solve those problems. And... Um, What it comes down to in short is a right relationship with God as the solution to those things. There is nothing else that solves the problems in this world other than a right relationship with Jesus, which is why we can do church events and we can have fun and we can feed people and we could talk about the six great ways to be a good employee and the four things you can do to improve your marriage. But if we don't talk about what it means to have a right relationship with God, to think rightly about God, to think rightly about ourselves, there is nothing that will help. And so, having said all of that, um, let's jump into uh, the Bible and let's look at what the Bible has to say. Um, So here's the the first thing that I want to look at as we think about the Christmas season, And this is a promise that is made in Genesis chapter 3. It's Matthew 121. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's a problem in the world. The reason everything is wrong is sin. And one of the things we'll discover as we read this passage is that Adam's sin impacted people, human beings. And that's the most significant thing, but not just people. It impacted the earth every natural disaster, every death, every bad thing that happens is because of Adam's sin. And that's one of the things that we learn. So, Jesus came to reverse the curse of the fall um, brought on by Adam's sin. God is gracious and good. He is a redeemer, and he has given us a historical account of how this happened. This is a real story that really took place and as we think about it, it helps us understand life. Now, just as a review for Genesis chapter two, you know, God made obedience easy. Makes a, makes a garden with wonderful trees, puts beautiful fruit that's attractive that everybody would want. And God made obedience as easy as possible. Here's this one tree. I'm gonna give you amazing things to eat. Just don't eat from this one tree. And that's God's goodness, right? Some people have this idea that God's a mean, bad person. He's made all these rules. He's trying to trip us up. He's trying to mess us up. By the way, that is Satan speaking anytime you hear that. God's good, and he makes obedience easy, and everything he tells us is for our well-being. Work is not a curse, that is a blessing, and it's something that we're supposed to do to bring God's glory, God glory. God has a plan for men and women to function in complementary roles. God intends men to be leaders in their family and in the church, and God intends women to be helpers and supporters and followers in that. And we have a culture that has mislabeled that we have Satan who has been polluting and corrupting and turning that into something negative instead of the beautiful thing that God intended. And uh, marriage, man, the greatest gift that God ever, ever gave mankind. Um, godly leadership is what God intended. Help, no conflict um, in marriage was God is, God's intention, uh, but love, companionship, the multiplication of effort. You know, the great thing about a marriage working the way it's supposed to is that if you have two people working really hard and faithfully, that that would equal the labor of two people. But when you take two people and you put them together, and when they're working together the way God intends, it's actually worth more than two people. My dad used to always say, A boy is half a man, two boys is half a boy. (laughs) <laughs> and that's because you put two boys together, they're going to fight, they're going to screw around, they're going to mess around. Um, God intends marriage to multiply the, the effort of labor. But marriages that are not functioning the way God intends um, actually become negative, damaging, harmful, and they remove the effort of either person. And so um, that's kind of where we start. And now we're going to figure out where it all went wrong. So the first thing that we're going to see is that Satan, Satan's attacks are always disguised. You know, Satan never comes right out with things. Well, okay, I will take that back. <laughs> Satan rarely <laughs> comes right out with things. I've, I've seen Satan say things. Like there's people who actually worship Satan. And, and there are people that like the most evil, terrible things that you would think nobody would actually fall for. There are a number of people that if you list something really terrible and evil and say Satan wants to do this and he wants to hurt as many people as possible, there are a certain number of people who will go, I'm in. That sounds fun. But for the most part, Satan's attacks are disguised. So let's read this account, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. We'll start with the first part of this verse. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So there's this serpent in the Garden of Eden, and um, Satan indwells this snake. This is not some mythical type of a thing. You know, we, as you look through Scripture, it's an interesting thing. People want to discount Genesis, and they'll pick out things and go, oh, there's this snake, and that couldn't have really happened, so that means this is all mythical. Um, There are so many things in Genesis that people will point to and go, well, that makes it mythical, and this makes it mythical, and this makes it mythical. But when you actually read the Bible, the stuff that they point to happens everywhere. So there's this snake in the garden, and the snake's going to speak. And they'll go, everybody knows snakes don't speak. Well, you know, the Bible talks about other animals that speak. Um, Balaam's donkey speaks. There's an eagle in Revelation that's flying that God has speak. Um, as far as animals being demon-possessed, this is not the only time that has happened. Remember when Jesus faces that demon act and he, he casts the demons, uh, these demons that were a legion, so there was this guy that was possessed by, by hundreds of demons inside one person. And when Jesus casts those demons out, they run into a herd of pigs. And, they, and the demons, who always want to destroy things, they run these pigs off a cliff and they all drown. So, so these things in Genesis, yeah, they're unique. This is a unique thing where a snake is possessed by a demon. But this happens in other places in Scripture. And actually, you could go through all of Genesis, all the stuff that happens in Genesis. Um, almost none of it, it only happens. And it happens all over the Bible. And so we have this serpent. And one of the ways we know this is really a serpent is that it says right here that um, it was lit, it's, it's a beast of the field that God had made. The curse is on the literal animal. You know, when you look at snakes today, when God curses a snake, snakes today are exactly uh, what God cursed a snake to be. They probably originally walked because in the curse it's going to say they have to slither on their bellies. The New Testament specifically refers to this as a historical account on multiple occasions, and throughout the Bible, Satan is referred to as a serpent. So, we see those things. Now, where did Satan come from? Where did evil come from? That's, that's one of the questions that we realize. God made the world perfect, and sometime between, you know, all that God created all the angels, and here's the thing. God created people personally, but the, the angels, every angel, God created at once. He created myriads of angels just with a the word. They were all created, and, but with people, God specifically individually made Adam out of dirt, and they took Adam's rib, and he specifically made Eve, and Adam and Eve were made in God's image. Angels created all at once, and they were created, we know from Job, they saw the creation week. They watched God creating, and they were worshiping God as he created, and Satan is an angel, and there are two passages in the Bible that kind of talk about the fall of Satan, actually three. One's in Ezekiel, and it's the same thing. You know how when Jesus uh, here, God's going to talk to the snake later, and he's going to talk through the snake to Satan, who's indwelling the snake. We have in Ezekiel and in Isaiah, God's talking to kings. The prophet is talking to a king, but he speaks through that king to Satan, who is indwelling and motivating those kings, just like he did with Peter. Do you remember when Jesus was talking to Peter and Uh, Satan fills Peter to speak something to Jesus, and Jesus looks at Peter, and he says, get behind me, Satan. There are times that God and Jesus speak to people, but speak through them to what is influencing them. And so, in Ezekiel, we see that, and this is what it says in Ezekiel. I'll just read this to you, Ezekiel 28. It says, um, son of man, raise a lament over the king of Tyre. This is where Satan came from. This is what went wrong with Satan. It says, you are the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. So how do we know he's talking to uh, Satan and not um, the king? Because the king wasn't in Eden, but Satan was. And he says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering and and you were crafted in gold, your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed guardian cherub. That's actually, Satan was created to be an angel that guarded um, God's holiness. He was the anointed cherub, the most powerful, most beautiful angel that God made. It says, I placed you... You were on the mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created. So God made every angel and everything perfect. Satan was created as a perfect angel. And then it says, until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as profane, as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor, and I cast you to the ground. When you read Revelation chapter 12, it actually talks about when this happened, and Michael the archangel leads all the heavenly hosts to fight against Satan and to throw him out of heaven. And it just talks about how Satan convinces a third of the angels to join him in fighting God, and they're all thrown out of heaven. Isaiah chapter 14 um, talks about what was going on in the heart of Satan. And it just says this, Oh, how you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. You were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on the most high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol to the far recesses of the pit. And so this is Satan. This is where he came from. God creates Adam and Eve. He makes mankind in his image. Now, here's the interesting thing. When, e- when angels sinned. You know what God's response was? Uh, Matthew chapter uh, 25 verse 41 tells us that God, um, when angels sinned, that God created hell. It says that hell was created for the devil and his angels. Do you want to know who else is going to go to hell? Every human being that joins forces with Satan, that rebels against God, that refuses the offer of salvation. But hell was not created for people. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. And when, those devil, when the devil and the angels, when God created hell for them, and then they see mankind sin, we're going to see later, Jesus promises a Messiah. When man sins, God decides to send Jesus to die for man. When angels sin, God creates hell. So it goes on, and we're going to see this. Let's listen to how Satan attacks. One of the things that you learn about um, Satan is that when you read this account of Satan in Genesis, what you're going to realize is that the same things that Satan did in the Garden of Eden, he does today. The exact same lies that he tells. His exact same approach. And that's one of the reasons it's so important to think about this and to realize and to evaluate What did Satan do? How did he do that? Because he's still doing that. He does this in your marriage. He does this in different conflicts that you have. When you read the Bible and you question it and you struggle with it, Satan is doing the same thing every day, all the time that he did in the garden. And it's amazing how often we can fall for the same tricks. And so it's important for us to think about this so we'll recognize it in our life. So, this is what Satan does. He says to the woman, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So, he's already uh, presenting God. The way he frames the question, he frames it that God's unreasonable. Do you see how he does that? It's God said, you can't eat from any of the trees. Um, You know, so often... Satan tries to make God's commands seem unreasonable, unkind, mean. God's holding out on you. You know, I think about for myself, I didn't want to become a Christian because I felt like obeying God would rob me of any fun or enjoyment in life. And that is a satanic view of life. It's not true. Um, He goes on and he says, and the woman says to the serpent, now this is what's interesting, the whole thing of leadership. You know, in Genesis chapter 2, when God gives this command, Eve's not there. Um, God creates Adam. He gives this command to Adam. And then what's Adam's job? Adam's job is to be the leader in his family and to teach Eve what God told him. That's, That's part of the order of creation. That is what God intends, is that men be the leaders and the instructors. And this does not mean that women shouldn't teach, that moms shouldn't teach. We don't need women in the church that teach less. We need women in the church that teach more. Um, there is not a reduction in any way of the ministry and the purpose of women. And I used an example last last week of myself as the, an associate pastor. Um, and also when, when I was transitioning somebody else into a leadership position that I was in, me being in a support role did not in any way reduce my influence. In some ways... When I was the person in a support role, my influence was more powerful than when I was leading, because I got to set an example to everybody. This is how we follow a leader. And when a leader said to do something, people are looking to me, hey, you used to be in charge. And I set an example. No, this is how you follow. By the way, submission to authority, a right heart, a right attitude toward the Lord the, one of the most powerful places that that comes is in a marriage where you have a dad who's leading the family the way he's supposed to lead, and when the wives in those families are following this leader, and they're showing this is how you follow, this is how you submit to authority, this is how you support and encourage, this is what God intends. And all the kids in the house look, and they learn about submission, and they learn about obedience, not just from what they're told, but from what they see. And so, for me, when I was transitioning somebody else into leadership, I did everything that everybody else should do. I showed them what that looked like, I showed them what that attitude should be like. And that's what God intends. And here we say the woman, she responds to Satan. And by the way, notice that Satan isn't going to Adam. That's who God intended to be, the leader and the protector. And Satan starts by saying, okay, I want to tear this apart. I'm not going to tempt Adam. I'm going to go after Eve. She's supposed to be following. I'm going to get her to be the leader here, out of order. And let's see how I can cause the destruction for Adam and Eve. And so he goes and he says to the serpent, She says, we may eat from the trees, the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, did you notice that when God originally gave the command to Adam, he didn't say don't touch it. He just said, don't eat it. And I wonder if Adam was trying to help Eve out and if he maybe added to what God said, hey, don't eat it. And to make sure we don't eat it, let's not even touch it. I mean, I don't know. But what we know is that when she's repeating this command, she adds the word, don't touch it, lest you die. Um, You know, when you think about Satan and the way that he attacks, he is incredibly powerful. You know, Michael was the angel that led the army host to throw Satan out of heaven. But in Jude chapter one, verse nine, it talks about where there was this fight over the body of Moses when Moses died. And it says that Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with Moses, about the, with Satan, about the body of Moses. So maybe Satan's trying to possess the dead body of Moses so he can miss Lady Israel. I don't know, but we just know that there's this battle over the body of Moses. And God sends Michael down. And says, Michael, go stop Satan from messing with Moses' body. Jude chapter 1, verse 9 just says that when Michael disputes with Satan about the body of Moses, he he doesn't even go after Satan. Satan is so powerful that Michael the Archangel says, The Lord rebuke you. Michael the Archangel prays and says, God, help me win this battle. That's how powerful Satan is. You know what is amazing to me is people who mess around with Satan and satanic ideas. And we can do that with occult things like palm reading. Anybody ever reads their horoscope? That is satanic. Anybody who's into what's your sign? That, that stuff is all satanic. Tarot cards, any of those kinds of things. But it's not just those directly satanic things. It's even worldly philosophies. Where, and this can be just have to do with the role of men and women even. It could be related to any of the things that God says, where we just go, you know, these worldly ideas, they kind of sound better to me, and we play around with those, and we allow those things to fill our minds, and we kind of feel like, well, I know God says that, but I think this is going to be a better path. It's amazing to me the way that people mess around with satanic thinking, and they invite this into their life, thinking that they can play around with it and not be burned, Satan is so powerful, we need to stay away from him and avoid that. Satan has superior intellect. You know, think about how influential Satan is. God creates all the angels, they watch God do creation, and somehow Satan manages to convince a third of the angels to rebel against God. How do you do that with people in God's presence? Well, they're not people. How do you do that with angels in God's presence? But Satan did it. We cannot underestimate his power. He is compelling. And and how does Satan speak to you? He speaks to you in your own mind, he speaks to you through the voices of your friends. Uh, Sometimes, um, as you know, like he's going to speak to Adam through Eve. (laughs) I think about Job. Job goes through all this difficulty and God kills ev- or Satan kills everybody in his family but leaves his wife. <laughs> and uh, I saw this comedian like, kind of doing a thing about that. And it's like, hey, Job, you, you, killed, you killed everybody in Job's family except the wife. And, and Satan's like, ha, 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 I know what I'm doing. Trust me. Let's leave her there. <laughs> and so Satan will speak to you through your friends. I've had conversations with people that were really struggling with something in their life and some random person or some friend will come speak to them, and they will say things to encourage them down this sinful, destructive path. And it is amazing sometimes, like, as they'll relay the story to me, I'll think to myself, there is no way, no human way that that person could have known the pinpoint of your struggles, the way that you're struggling, the things that are happening in your life, and for them to be able to verbalize and to speak to you in a way that encourages you, that is so influential and so powerful, that is demonic. That's satanic. And sometimes uh, Satan will speak to you in your own mind. He'll speak to you through your friends. He'll speak to you through people that are very close. And just like Peter was saying to Jesus things. Jesus actually says to Peter, you're a stumbling block to me. Satan put the perfect words in Peter's mouth to say to to, uh, to Jesus. And that even can happen in the church. Sometimes satanic messages come from fellow believers. And so it's powerful. It's influential. Satan is known as the, the, the tempter, the deceiver. And so we're, we, we just see this, that, that Satan does that. Um, John 8, 44, you're, the fa- you're of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character because he's a liar and the father of all lies. You know, that's why from the time kids are young, we teach them the Bible. That's why you need to read trust and believe the Bible every single day because that's what helps you recognize when you go to church and the pastor speaks for Satan which happens when you have um, when you have a, a famous pastor who writes a book and in that book are satanic words when you're talking to your spouse and they tell you things that are satanic when you are hanging out with your christian friends and they encourage you in satanic ways the only way for you to know that is to read the bible to understand what satan's voice sounds like and to understand the things that god says and then when you when you're used to recognizing those voices which only come from reading and understanding scripture you will know When somebody speaks to you, you'll go, yep, that's Jesus. Uh, Yes, that is Jesus. No, that is Satan. When you have thoughts, like I know people who pray and they feel like God spoke to me and God told me this. And then what they say next is satanic. And it's because their own mind is full of satanic, demonic thoughts, which, by the way, happens to all of us. And when we experience that, we need to know what God says so we'll recognize that it's satanic. Here's a third thing that we're going to see here. Uh, Satan's just going to directly contradict God's Word. You know, that's what Satan does. He contradicts God's Word. That's one of the best ways you can recognize that. Somebody says, oh yeah, um, why get married? You should just live together. Satanic, that's a contradiction of God's Word. Well, I prayed about it. God told me I should do this. Or when you're considering who you should marry, you know, this is a really wonderful person. They're they're amazing. They're brilliant, um, and they're really nice. Um, they're not a Christian. I'm a Christian. They're not a Christian, but you know what? They're nicer than all the other Christians I know. That's satanic, but I prayed about it, and God told me I should do it. Or somebody else who's who says, you know, I've been praying about how I should spend my money. And I heard one person say this to me, God told me it's not good for me to be in debt, so um, he's told me I just shouldn't pay any of my creditors, and and I should just give some money to church and do other things because God doesn't believe in debt. And I'm like, really? Did you sign something saying that you would promise to pay these people back? Well, then that's satanic for you to say that. But people have all these kind of thoughts and rationalism, and people tell them things, and they go, oh, I prayed about it, God's telling me this. No, that's satanic. So this is what the serpent's going to do. He's just going to contradict God's Word. And it says this in verse 3, But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he contradicts God's Word. What God said is not true. God's actually holding out on you. It would be really fun if you did this. It would be really good for you if you did that. I'm just telling you, that is the way I thought about life as a kid growing up in church. If I become a Christian, I'm going to be miserable. I'm going to have to give up everything that's fun. You know, doesn't sin sometimes look really good? You know, like you you look at these like teenagers with raging hormones. And um, look at all the pornography Look at all the sexual immorality that gets paraded everywhere in culture. And by the way, it is not just teenagers. It's like everybody is in this world where we take these debauched, terrible, destructive, sinful things, and Satan paints it like it's so cool and so fun. And oh, if you're a Christian, you miss out. See, that's what Satan did right here, and he's still doing all the same stuff. If you eat, your eyes are going to be open and you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. You know, it's interesting that um, Satan's lies are often partially true. Like he's very convincing. He can make very good sense. And, and there's elements of truth to the lies that Satan tells. Um, talk about um, uh, just the whole idea of returning good for evil, right? God says return good for evil. But man, you can make a pretty good argument for... Um, you cannot let people get away with that. If a person treats you like that and you respond with kindness, they're just going to keep treating you that way. You need to draw a line. You need to teach people a lesson. You don't put up with that. And um, there's a difference between holding people accountable and making decisions about things. And I'm not saying that we should never address sinful things that happen to us or that if somebody's stealing from us that we should just open up our wallet and say, yeah, here, keep stealing. I'm not saying that. Um, God wants us to be good stewards, but, but Satan can take those types of things and put a twist on it that is very logical. You know, God says, follow your husband. Yeah, my husband's a bad leader though, and he's not very nice. And you can come up with all kinds of excuses to blow off the things that God says, and it's very logical. But one of the things about this is it says that uh, Satan tells him you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil, and guess what? They are going to be like God, they're going to know good and evil, but there's a twist to it. They're going to know good and evil in a different way than God's going to know good and evil, because God never experienced evil. God never committed evil, and you, when they sin, pollute themselves, destroy themselves spiritually, and they instantly understand. They instantly feel what they did when they ate that fruit, and at the end of it, They weren't saying, oh, good, I'm so glad I did that. Just like every other sin. Right after they do it, they they see the destruction of it. Think about that for all the teenagers that, man, you know, (laughs) I remember uh, one person was talking to this drug addict that was just saying, oh, man, these drugs are so awesome. They are so fun. It's like the best thing. And you know what? Let's hang out later. We can do this. I remember my friends in school, when I was in high school, I had good friends that were taking acid. And uh, they, they were they were taking hits of acid, and, and they were just telling me, Raj, man, this is just so fun. Uh, you, you take acid, and you just start to hallucinate, and it's just like just all these really bizarre, weird things happen. It's really awesome. And they said, but you've got to be really careful what you think about, because you could really scare yourself. And it was like you listen to these people taking drugs, and they're just making it sound so awesome. Go talk to a drug addict. Go look at a homeless person strung out on heroin and say, how'd that work out for you? Uh, How about an alcoholic who's destroyed their body, uh, lost their marriage? Like the path of sin always promises these wonderful great things. And it's easy for us to be very moral and go, oh yeah, well, drugs are bad and stealing is bad and breaking into cars is bad and, and committing crimes is bad. Every single sin, that Satan puts in front of us, is destructive. And so he, ta- he attacks God's goodness. He attacks God's order. Look what it says in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and there was a tree was to be desired, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So she exercises leadership. She makes a decision. She eats and she gives to her husband and says, now eat. And what does he do? He stands there passive, uh, not doing what God told him to do. He's there when this is happening. She eats and then she gives it to him. He's actually sitting there listening to the conversation between Satan and Eve. And does he stand up? Does he intervene? Does he stop her? No. And by the way, that is the story of one marriage after another, where you'll have a couple that's married, and somebody will say, no, we should go to church. We should prioritize this spiritual thing. We should do this. Maybe somebody wants to take vengeance on somebody, and and the husband's like, no, you, you shouldn't take vengeance. By the way, if your husband wants to take vengeance, part of the way you help as a wife is to say to your husband, don't take vengeance uh, part of being a good helping wife and part of, part of how you support and you help is when somebody's about to do something dumb, you say, no, this is what God says. Don't do that. It's not like only men speak and everybody else should be quiet. Like it's, it's, it's the role that God intends, but everybody should know God's Word. Everybody should help and support each other. Men should be leading and women should be following and helping. But instead, Adam sits there passive. He takes this fruit And then he eats too. She gives it to her husband and eats. And look at verse seven. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked. Now, when you think about the way chapter two ends, God's made this perfect creation, and they're naked and they're not ashamed. And somebody might think to themselves, where Adam and Eve were perfect. They were the smartest people in the world, they had the perfect bodies. Like if you were to just say, what is the perfect woman? That was Eve. What is the perfect man? That was Adam. So if you're going to talk about naked people who wouldn't be ashamed, like these are people with perfect bodies. And you might say, why would they be ashamed? They're spectacularly beautiful. But you want to know something that has nothing to do with their physical appearance. Because now they eat, and now all of a sudden they're naked and they're ashamed. And it's not because their bodies changed. It's because something spiritual between them and God broke that right relationship, that purity, that innocence, having a a husband and a wife that love each other and have perfect fellowship and encourage each other. And there's no reason anybody would be ashamed because there's nothing but love and encouragement and support and, and trust between two people. And the moment their relationship with God breaks, their relationship with each other breaks, and they're naked and they're ashamed. And you want to know something? The solution to marriages and right relationships within marriage is not that you lose weight and get a shape that's not what makes people feel safe the, the what gives a person a good marriage is none of the external things it is a right relationship with god that says god I love you I want to please you I'm going to honor you and that is going to impact the relationship i have with the other people in my life and, and first and foremost with my spouse. Being right with God, having a desire to please and honor God gives you a good relationship with your spouse. We always talk about this in premarital counseling, that uh, relationships are like a triangle, and God's on the top, and man and wife are down here. And when you get married, the closer you grow to the Lord, the closer you get to each other. And so what we see here is that um, there's a lot of couples then encourage each other to do sinful things for fun because they think somehow they'll enjoy it together and it'll be good for their relationship. That, that is destructive. So then here's their solution. Verse 7, the eyes of both of them were open. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths with leaves. <laughs> what do leaves do? Leaves dry out. <laughs> and like you just think about clothes. You don't want clothes made out of leaves. So they come up with this terrible solution to their sin problem, and uh, people are doing that to this very day. Um, The fourth thing we're going to see here, so we just saw three things about Satan, and then here's what we're going to see about God, a few things about God. Um, God pursues people who sin. That's one of the things you see in the story. It's true in life. When we sin, when we break our relationship with God, we feel like running and hiding. That's what they did. You want to know what God does? God comes after us. By the way, when your kids do stuff that are wrong, they stop talking to you. They start hiding from you. In a marriage, when people start doing things that they shouldn't be doing, uh, there's a lack of openness and communication. And one of the things we should do is we need to make repentance easy. When when relationships break, we need to pursue reconciliation. As believers, if your husband sins against you, you need to make restoration easy. That's what God does. Uh, Just like God pursues you, you need to be pursuing your spouse when your kids are doing stuff they're not supposed to do. Like, we should look at what did God do when Adam and Eve sinned. That's what we should do when the people in our lives sin, what God did. We pursue for restoration. And uh, and by the way, and husbands, your wife does something that she shouldn't do, and you're noticing distance. You need to dig into that and pursue that and put that back together. That's what it says in verse eight. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You know, it's interesting. Proverbs says that the wicked flee when no one's chasing. But the, bold, but, the, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. You know, there's some people they just have a guilty conscience. You know, it's like uh, they, they don't want anybody looking at their phone because they're afraid of what people will find, and, and they start, like, they just feel like, they, they always feel like they're being chased. It's because they're guilty, and so they're running, and God comes after them. They're hiding, But the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, "'Where are you?' (laughs) Did God say that because he didn't know where he was? God's reaching out to create communication. He's asking a question that Adam is going to answer. God knows where he is. These questions are not for God. These questions are for Adam. He says, "'Where are you?' And he says, "'I heard the sound of you in the garden, "'and I was afraid.'" Because I was naked and I hid myself. You know, I think about Romans 5:8. God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Look at verse 11. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? <laughs> God knows already, right? Yeah. He's helping Adam realize, you disobeyed me. You know how you feel? because of what you did and our relationship is broken spiritually because of what you did so he's asking questions and he's leading adam to the things that adam needs to understand and then look what adam does you're right god i blew it i was a terrible leader i stood there on my own while satan tempted eve i didn't intervene i did not function the way you intended for me is it (laughs) wait is that wait i that's not what i read let me let me read this again then the man said to the, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So he blames God and Eve at the same time. It's not me. It is you and it is her. I mean, it's her, but you're the one who gave her to me. This is your fault. Have you ever met anybody that they just blow off everything God says? Like you teach them what God says to do. They go do all that stuff and then bad things happen in their life and they say, God hates me. This is not fair. God is terrible. Look at this horrible mess in my life. It's like, yeah, you just did everything God said don't do. It's like if God said, don't jump off the roof, you'll break your leg. And then you just go, no, I'm doing it anyway. You jump off the roof, you break your leg. God's terrible. He hates me. I have a broken leg and it hurts. That's what, that's what they do. So we, do you guys ever blame each other in your marriage? you ever have conflicts and you blame other people? So then God says to the woman, by the way, Eve eats. And who does God speak to first? He doesn't say, Eve, what'd you do? He says, Adam, what'd you do? That is another way we see that God intends men to be leaders. He holds them responsible to be the leaders in their family. And he goes to Adam and says, Why'd you, what'd you do? So then the Lord God said to the woman, so he doesn't skip the woman. God's going to now address that. And by the way, it is not just leaders obligated to obey God. Women are too. People following are also obligated to obey God. So he doesn't go, Eve, you're off the hook. This has nothing to do with you. This is Adam's fault. He doesn't say that. He then immediately goes to Eve and said, Eve, you were obligated to obey me. And he says, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? What does the woman do? (laughs) She's going to blame the snake. The woman said that the serpent deceived me and I ate. Um, Let's look at the fifth thing. So, you know what God does? It's interesting. He goes in reverse order and He judges in reverse order. Starts with a snake. Starts with Satan. You know, uh, He says to the snake, Lord, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Um, snakes look like they, like they look and they slither on the ground, not because they evolved. Snakes are exactly the way God made them until He changed them in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning, and they have not changed. There may be development within snakes, but snakes are crawling on the ground just like they did when they were originally created by God and when He cursed them in the garden. And so He says, you're cursed. By the way, snakes are kind of disgusting and evil-looking, right? Have you ever, like, I know you guys probably can't see that very well, but Whoever looked at a snake and said, Oh, you beautiful, this is so comfy. You know, um, so Jackson moved out of our house, and you want to know what he did when he moved out? One of the first things he did, he bought a snake. Um, Michelle liked fluffy little puppies. She even let the kids have a hamster. But when our kids said, We want a snake, it's like, Not at my house, we're not having a snake. And uh, anytime, there was a couple times when kids were growing up that were, there were snakes in our house. And Michelle's calling me, get this snake out of our house. Not that they brought him in, snakes that got in. And, um, and so snakes are like these ugly, evil little things. And when you look at them, it's just it's like this, it's this reminder of how evil Satan is. And that doesn't mean that they're not beautiful creations. I know teenage boys and my own son likes having a snake, but they're not cute little fluffy creatures. And then what does God do? Um, God has told us that when we disobey Him, we're going to suffer. And so God is going to immediately promise a Redeemer. Let's look at uh, verse 15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He'll bruise your head and you will bruise His heel. In other words, Satan, Jesus is going to have an eternal victory over Satan, and Satan is going to cause earthly suffering to Jesus. Isn't that what happened in the crucifixion? God immediately promises a solution in his curse of the snake. Then he's going to pronounce consequences. There are always consequences to sin. To the woman he said, surely I will multiply your pain in childbearing. Um, Talk to Becky Paff about this. Um, She's just gone through that. And talk to some moms. Um, I, I was afraid, like when we were heading to the hospital with Jessica, I was kind of terrified of the, the idea of this big, huge kid coming out of Michelle. And I was just thinking to myself, oh my goodness, I don't, I, I don't want that. And uh, I was thinking, I am so, th- I want the kid. But, uh, you know, and one of the gifts I think God gives women is they're so uncomfortable in the ninth month of pregnancy, they're willing to suffer to get this over with. And, um, you know, it's like you look at these newborn babies and they just look too so small until you start thinking about giving birth. And you're like, that thing's huge. Uh, Childbirth is painful. Um, That's one of the consequences of sin. And then it says this, your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That whole conflict of God's perfect plan of leadership and submission got messed up in the fall and so you have women that don't follow their their desires contrary to their husband's desire it's it doesn't necessarily come naturally now by the way people's personalities are different some people follow better than others naturally um by the way following is something you learn and from the time kids are small we start thinking about like two and three-year-olds you know it's interesting to me people bring their kids to church and you'll get like a little, a little kid who just like throws a fit and doesn't want to go to the nursery. And you got these parents that are like, okay, kid doesn't want to go to the nursery and they just don't take them. Or um, they don't want to go to Sunday school. My kids don't want to go to Sunday school. And so parents just go, oh yeah, okay, you don't have to. And, and sometimes the way we parent, we train kids that they're in charge instead of teaching them to understand what authority is. And instead of a parent saying, no, actually you need to be in Sunday school I'm going to teach you to go to Sunday school. You need to be in the nursery because I need to be able to worship in church. And so I'm going to teach you to be in the nursery. And we have kids. And instead of being raised and learning how to follow, that actually should be our intention. We teach boys from the time they're young what God's plan is for them as leaders. I remember going to the the doctor with John one time, and he had to get these, uh, these things cut out of him. And he was really stressed out, and he was kind of afraid. And, um, and I just told him, I was trying to be sensitive to him, and I said, John, I realize that this is scary, and this, they're going to come in with this thing, and cut this thing out of your body, and you're kind of scared of that. But I just told him, he's probably like about seven or eight years old, and I just said, the bottom line, John, is that you know, the, there are hard things in life that you have to do, and this is one of those hard things, and you're scared, but you need to toughen up and do this, because one day you're going to be a dad, and you're going to be leading a family, and there's going to be hard, scary things that you need to deal with, and this is part of you learning how to be a man, and yes, it's scary, and if I was you, I'd be afraid too, and so I tried to comfort him, but from the time he was young, I was telling him, this is what it's going to, this is who God has called you to be, and, and so, the, and it was funny, the doctor's like standing there listening to that, he started laughing. You know, he's just like laughing, you know, just like, wow, you know. And then I'm like, okay, so John, are you ready for this? And he's like, yep. So he toughened up, and then the doctor cut some stuff out of him. And it's like from the time kids are young, we're teaching them what God's plan is for them as a man, and we're teaching them what God's plan is for them as a woman. And that isn't shut up, be quiet, and stand in the back of the room. It's every gift and talent God's given you, use it to the fullest. But here's how God intends you to function. And that comes more naturally for some people than for others. And that's also something we learn by what we see. Our example is important. And then he says this to Adam, verse 17, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. It wasn't just human beings that fell. Earth fell. Things are wrong with the earth and with creation because of what Adam did. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles will spring up forth for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you'll eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, and you are dust, and to dust you'll return. That is death. Um, By the way, nobody and nothing died until Adam and Eve sinned. And after Adam and Eve sinned, things started to die, which is why evolution doesn't work, because there's no death before the fall. And so then there's death. And it's interesting, it says here, because you have listened to your wife, instead of exercising leadership, you followed and you sinned. You let your wife tell you to sin and you obeyed. And he says, because of that, curse. And then we see this expression of hope. Um, In verse 20, the man called to his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. That's a first sacrifice. God kills an animal and makes clothes that will last, like leather clothes. Those feel way better than plants. Uh, Plants don't last very long. Leather clothes can last a long time, but Adam and Eve saw the first animal die and God killed an animal to give them clothes. Do you know why? Because animals are not as important as people. They are God's creation. We should take care of animals. The Bible tells us that a righteous man cares for the needs of his animals. So, we don't just abuse God's creation, but people are made in God's Image, animals are not made in God's image. And God kills an animal to solve Adam and Eve's need for clothes. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken, and he drove the man east out of the garden and placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So Satan was a cherub. God takes another one of the unfallen cherubs and says, you guard the way to the, to the tree of life. Because if Adam and Eve would have eaten that, they would have been eternally separated from God. And so you see God solving their problem and protecting them against themselves, and He drives them out of the garden. And then what we're going to see following this is their sin problem. They're going to get to watch it firsthand work out with their own kids when one of their sons kills their other son. And that's, that's a terrible tragedy, but we'll look at that in January. Um, the lessons in this Man, we need to be the people that God has called us to be. We need to recognize Satan's voice and God's voice. And this is an incredible story that we should read and think deeply about because it informs the way we live and how we function. And we're gonna, right now, we're gonna take a moment and we're just gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper. And um, you know what? Jesus solved our sin problem. He came to this earth and he wasn't just born. He lived a perfect life and He died on the cross to pay the price for our sin. Isaiah 53 says this, He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. Um, Paul says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had broken it, he, given, he had gave thanks and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When we take this cup, and, and in a moment you can get up, just walk up. There's uh, tables all around the church. Just take some bread, and when you, when you, when you eat that bread, um, remember that Jesus died for you to solve your sin problem. It goes on and it says in the same way he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes so this is something that we celebrate that we remember that we think about the sacrifice that jesus made for us and this is how we proclaim the gospel. Everybody who sees this and everybody who thinks about it, it's like, what is that? This is remembering the death of Christ which achieved our salvation, something we could never do for ourselves, something that God promised. Before he even talks to Adam and Eve about what they did wrong, he promises a solution to the problem they created. God is a, a gracious, loving God. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, thank you for what we learn in Genesis chapter 3, and I just pray that you would help us to remember and be thankful for your solution to our sin problem. In your name, Amen. amen.